The Parlor Car Ghost by W. Bob Holland. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Max Holloway. All draped with blue denim, the seaside cottage of my friend, Sarah Pine. She asked me to go there with her when she opened it to have it set in order for the summer. She confessed that she felt a trifle nervous at the idea of entering it alone, and I am always ready for an excursion. So much blue denim rather surprised me because blue is not complementary to Sarah's complexion. She always wears some shade of red by preference. She perceived my wonder. She is very nearsighted and therefore sees everything by some sort of sixth sense. You do not like my portieres and curtains and table covers, she said. Neither do I, but I did it to accommodate. And now he rests well in his grave, I hope. Whose grave, for pity's sake? Mr. J. Billington Prices. And who is he? He doesn't sound interesting. Then I will tell you about him, said Sarah, taking a seat directly in front of one of those curtains. Last autumn, I was leaving this place for New York, traveling on the fast express train known as the Flying Yankee. Of course, I thought of the Flying Dutchman and Wagner's musical setting of the uncanny legend and how different things were these days of steam, etc. Then I looked out of the window at the landscape, the horizon that seemed to wheel in a great curve as the train sped on. Every now and then I had an impression at the tail of the eye that a man was sitting in a chair three or four numbers in front of me on the opposite side of the car. Each time that I saw this shape, I looked at the chair and ascertained that it was unoccupied. But it was an odd trick of vision. I raised my lorgnette and the chair showed emptier than before. There was nobody in it, certainly. But the more I knew that it was vacant, the more plainly I saw the man, always with the corner of my eye. It made me nervous. When passengers entered the car, I dreaded least they might take that seat. What would happen if they should? A bag was put in the chair that made me more comfortable. The bag was removed at the next station. Then a baby was placed in the seat. It began to laugh as though somebody had gently tickled it. There was something odd about that chair. Thirteen was its number. When I looked away from it, the impression was strong upon me that some person sitting there was watching. Really, it would not do to humor such fancies. So I touched the electric button, asked the porter to bring me a table and taking from my bag a pack of cards, proceeded to divert myself with a game of patience. I was puzzling where to put a seven of spades. Where can it go? I murmured to myself. A voice behind me prompted, Play the four of diamonds on the five, and you can do it. I started. The only occupants of the car besides me were a bridal couple a mother of three children, and a typical preacher of one of the straightest sects 
Who had spoken? Play up the four, madam, repeated this voice. I looked fearful over my shoulder. At first I saw a bluish cloud, like cigar smoke, but inodorous. Then the vision cleared. And I saw a young man who I knew by a subtle intuition to be the occupant, seen and not seen, of chair number 13. Evidently, he was a traveling salesman and a ghost. Of course, a drummer's ghost sounds ridiculous. They're so extremely alive. Or else you would expect a dead drummer to be particularly dead and not walk. This was the most commonplace-looking ghost, cordial, pushing, business-like. At the same time, his face had an expression of utter despair and horror, which made him still more preposterous. Of course, it is not nice to let a stranger speak to one, even on so impersonal a topic as a four of diamonds. But a ghost, there can't be any rule of etiquette about talking with a ghost. My dear, it was dreadful. That forward creature showed me how to play all the cards and then begged me to lay them out again in order that he might give me some clever points. I was too much amazed to be disturbed to speak. I could only place the cards at his suggestion. This I did so as not to appear to be listening to the empty air and be supposed to be a crazy woman. Presently, the ghost spoke again and told me his story. Madame, he said, I've been riding back and forth on this car ever since February 22nd, 1890. Seven months and seven days. All this time, I have not exchanged a word with anyone. For a drummer, that is pretty hard, you may believe. You know the story of the Flying Dutchman? Well, that is very nearly my case. A curse is upon me and will not be removed until some kind soul, but I'm going ahead of my next text. That day there were four of us traveling for different houses. One of the boys was in wool, one in baking powder, one in boots and shoes, and myself in cotton goods. We met on the road, took seats together, and fell into talking shop. Those fellows told big lies about their sales. Washington's birthday thought it was. The baking powder man raised the amount of the bills of goods which he had sold better than the whole can of stuff could have done. I admitted the straight truth, that... I had not yet been able to make a sale. And then I swore, not in a light-minded, chipper style of verbal trimmings, but a great, round, heaven-defying oath that I would sell a case of blue denims on that trip if it took me forever. We became dry with talk, and when the train stopped at Rivermouth, we went out to have some beer. It was good there, you know. Pardon me, I forgot that I was speaking to a lady. Well, we had to run to get aboard. I missed my footing, fell under the wheels, and the next thing that I knew, 
they were holding an inquest over my remains. While I, disemboweled, was sitting on the corner of the undertaker's table, wondering which of the coroner's jury was likely to want a case of blue denims. Then I remembered my wicked oath, and understood that I was a soul doomed to wander until I could succeed in selling that bill of goods. I spoke once or twice, offering the denims under value, but nobody noticed me. Verdict, accidental death, negligence of deceased. Railroad Corporation, not to blame. Deceased got out for beer at own risk. The other drummers took charge of the remains and wrote a beautiful letter to my relatives about my social qualities and my impressive conversation. I wish that I had been less impressive that time. I might have lied about my sales, or I might have said that I hoped for better luck. But after the oath, there was nothing for it. Back and forth, back and forth, on this road, in chair number 13, to all eternity. Nobody suspects my presence. They sit on my knees. I'm playing in luck when it is a nice baby, as it was this afternoon. They pile wraps, bags, even railroad literature on me. They play cards under my nose, and what duffers some of them are. You, madame, are the first person who has perceived me, and therefore I ventured to speak to you. Meaning no offense, I can see that you are sorry for me. Now, if you recall the story of the Flying Dutchman, he was saved by charity of a good woman. In fact, Senta married him. Now, I'm not asking anything of that size. I see that you wear a wedding ring, and no doubt you make some man's happiness. I wasn't a marrying man myself, and naturally am not a marrying ghost. And that has nothing to do with the matter anyways. But if you could, I don't suppose you would have any use for them. But if you were disposed to do a turn of good, solid, Christian charity, I should be everlasting grateful, and you may have this case of denims at $72.50, and that quantity is quoted today at $80. Does it go, madame? The speech of the poor ghost was not very eloquent. But his eyes had an intense, eager glare, which was terrible, something pity, fear. I do not know what compelled me. I decided to do without that white and gold evening cloak. Instead, I gave seventy-two fifty to the ghost and took from him a receipt for the sum. Signed, J. Billington Price. Then he smiled contently, thanked me, with emotion, and returned to chair number 13. Several times on the journey, although I did not perceive him again, I felt dazed. When the train arrived at New York, and I with other passengers dismounted, it seemed to me that a strong hand passed under my elbow, steadying me down the steps. As I walked the length of the station, my bag, not heavy at any time, appeared to become weightless. I believe that the parlor car ghost walked beside me. 
carrying the bag, whose handle still remained in my other hand. Indeed, once or twice I thought I felt the touch of cold fingers against mine. Since then, I have no reason to suppose that the poor ghost is not at rest. I hope he is. But I never expected nor wished for the blue denims. The next day, however, a dray belonging to a great warehouse backed up to the door and delivered a case of denims with a receipted bill for the sale. What was I to do? I could not go about selling blue denims. I could not give them away without exciting comment. So I furnished the cottage with them. And you know the effect on my complexion. Pity me, dear, and credit me. Frivolous woman as I am, with having saved a soul at the expense of my own vanity. My story is told. What do you think about it? End of the Parlor Card Ghost Recorded by Max Holloway